with a special guest today. So excited. Awesome. Are you going to you normally at this point ruin who the guest is? Can oh, I? yeah. No, I'm trying my very best not to mention it's Tom. I can, I've done it again. <laughs> done it again. <laughs> uh, very special guest, good friend, very, very good at landing in water on his head, a global superstar, Mr. Tom Daly. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing good. I mean, this whole situation at the moment for, you know, as athletes is quite weird because we're not able to go about our normal routine and the normal things that we do but you know staying in good spirits good mate good well you can relax for the next five five minutes and have a good chat with me and my dad perfect uh, don't feel like this is a media fueled interview um you can swear if you like uh, but we're yeah. just gonna have some fun <laughs> i i'd just like to say as well it always sounds um a little bit weird niall doing a podcast with me dad Right, because um, I think on, on Radio 5 Live, uh, you know, Robbie Savage, the, who was the great footballer, he's got his own programme on 5 Live now. Yeah. On a Friday morning, and he has, it's, all, it's all about football, you know, football punditing and stuff like that. But every week I've listened to it a few times, he, he gets his mum on. Oh, really? Yeah, his mum comes on the thing, and then uh, he'll say, right, mum, how are you doing? Yeah, I, I, all right. Right, what do you think the score's going to be between Liverpool and Man United? And his mum will say, it's going to be 2-1, you know, his mum's going on. The, the, the whole point of this point of story, Tom, is it always sounds a bit weird when Niall says, I'm here with me dad on a podcast. Like, he needs his hand to hold it. Did it put you off, Tom, when I said, I'm here with dad? Say yes, please. <laughs> No, I, I I think it's great. I mean, it's it's fun to watch you guys on um on social media and how like how you are to you two are together because it reminds me a lot of me and my dad because my dad was a little bit of a joker and you know Neil and Niall's show does strike me as a bit of a a constant bit of a joke show which is like the exact spirit that myself my dad had like not take life too seriously in certain points and just be like have a good laugh you know yeah that's what it's about mate. So, um, you mentioned lockdown. You also, we were communicating um, a little bit from time to time. Your life's changed since you had the little baby. Oh, yes. How's that going? I mean, it's going amazing. He's two this month, actually. So, it's gone so crazy quick. But at the same time, it's been the most amazing thing. It changed my perspective on absolutely everything. It reminded me what actually matters in the world and what my priorities should be and how I think about things day to day. And I mean, I mean, in lockdown, it's slightly interesting, you know, trying to, you know, keep a toddler entertained without going outside. But when it comes to the competition side of things and competing, it's just, it's allowed me to take the pressure off of myself because you know, it allowed me to realize that diving doesn't define me. Um, I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm, I'm a, I'm constantly um, trying to do the best that I can for my son. And no matter whether I do really well or really badly, I'm able to actually, you know, it doesn't really matter because I know I'm going to go home to my little one and he's going to be, you know, welcoming me with open arms, no matter how I've done. So it does take the pressure off and allow me to perform better. Yeah, mate. I'm jealous. I think I can hear him. Is that him in the background? Yeah, he's downstairs. He's downstairs. You can probably hear him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just he's had a, he's off to bed now. So Lance is downstairs with him, getting him to bed as we speak. Love so it. that's always a bit of a challenge. Bless him. 
It's, it's always fantastic when they're so young, isn't it? When you know, when I have my two, um, you know, through the ages of two, three, four, your kids do not judge you in any way. When you get home, they put their arms out and they want to cuddle. That's it. Exactly. It's, it is. It is amazing. It's an amazing feeling. That and even just little things that they just need you to help them with, or they just want to cuddle, and they're the first. You're the first person that they look at when they hurt themselves, or they need something. There's just something that's so special about that, and it's yeah. It's. I mean, it's been amazing. Yeah, well, you, you you both come from a a you know the elite sports, you high high profile in sports where every time you're competing, you both have people judging you all the time, don't you? In oh, yeah. and in and in gymnastics, mm. it's all about being judged. Well, who I thought that was as good as this, or I thought it was as good as that. You know, kids, there's no judgment. They just they just love you bits, and we just love them right back, don't we, Tom? Being dads of the year and everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it literally is. It's, it's such a, I mean, I find myself, it opened up a whole different level of emotional locker that I never thought I had. Um, like I was never a crier. I was never, I never cried at films, but literally since becoming a parent, it's changed the way that I just, like in so many ways I did see things. So it's actually allowed, I don't know, it's opened some kind of locker in a way that has just made it so that I can I cry at films and I didn't even realize I would ever cry at films. Yeah. Be careful. Don't, don't watch Marley and me. You'll be sobbing for an hour. I've not seen that. So I probably I'll, I'll avoid it. Yeah. You two are making me like, jealous. I want, I want to be a dad. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize this podcast was for an announcement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, I'm a very long way away from that, but I, I am excited to experience it. And you know what? I've got this thing now as well where, like, you are still competing, Tom. I I, I would love, you know, I, I need to find a, a partner first, but I would love my ch- ch- child, first child, however many, to w- watch me do my thing live. Do you know what I mean? I've just yeah. got a vision where like, I want to I want to have my kids in the audience when I'm competing. Yeah, I mean, it's something so special. And to be fair, although, you know, he would have been there at the Olympics this year, the fact that it's been delayed a year means that he's going to be another year older and therefore he might have some kind of memory of it at three years old, yeah. which for me is a really exciting prospect because, you know, at two years old, he definitely wasn't going to remember a thing, but maybe at three years old, he might. Yeah, that would be amazing. And now may have to do the high bar final at around about 37 years old for that to happen to him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking at me like, what are you, what are you on about? But, um, um, can, can, as soon as you mention it, Tom, can we, um, I'd just like to ask you about the Olympics. Um, you, you tend to find with Niall and I, we jump around quite a bit, but you, you just triggered what my question was. How, how have you been since the announcement of the uh, year delay how has that cut across your kind of attitude towards uh, this year's what was going to be this year's olympics and your your sort of career plans what has that done to all of that yeah i mean it's it's funny you say that because i think for all athletes we were like really the hard part was not knowing whether they were going to postpone it or whether they were going to move it whether it was going to be cancelled completely so the unknown was not ideal uh, but then once we found out that it was going to be postponed and we got the dates for athletes, it's like, OK, now I can plan. Now I know what's going to happen. Of course, like it's but then it's also changed the way that I think about it in, in the sense that I get a second shot at an Olympic year. 
And it's not very often that you get a second shot of an Olympic year. Well, you never get a second shot of an Olympic year um, so so quickly. So I started this year with off with a broken hand where I was diving into the water and I smashed my hands together and I broke my hand. So I was already at a bit of a, you know, a rubbish start to the year. And there were so many things that I learned from that off season um, from October through to January when I broke my hand of what I could have done better and what I should have done and how we should have approached uh, in order to avoid injuries. So for me, it actually has given me a chance to reflect on how we our mentality changes in an Olympic year. And actually, we get a second crack at it. And mm. sometimes I think we find ourselves taking things so seriously that we take it to, to a level where you end up putting yourself at more danger and more risk, when actually you have to remember why you're doing it. And it's because we love doing it and we enjoy competing. We enjoy getting ready for the Olympic Games. And as soon as you take the enjoyment out of it, is it really worth doing? So you have to like, I just, just made me think that I need to just really enjoy this next year because it's a bonus year of diving that I didn't think I was going to have. So, you know. Yeah. Enjoying and living in the process. And, and, and is, is this your last dance, Tom, this Olympics? I, I don't know. I'd like to think it wasn't, but you know, you never know. Like I'm getting older now. I'm the oldest on the team. So I just, I've always said, I'll keep going as long as my body lets me. And at the moment, my body is doing good. Uh, I'm doing so many things to try and keep my body in a, in a certain shape to be able to perform on my dives and things like that. But at the same time, you know, you never know when, you know, injury strikes and, and injury can happen. Like, as you know, Niall, injury can happen at any point and it can be from a very mild to like pretty severe. And especially as you get older, the chances of recovering from injuries get, you know, less and less likely. So it's just a matter of trying to train smart. Uh, so it, and then you can actually get to a point where you're able to compete because you just have you have to get to the start line. Yeah, training smart, absolutely. Yeah. That's my uh, that's keep my real. train smart, keep it real. <laughs> yeah, we, we all know. I'm sure everyone listening knows. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can just mention where you can get your merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, I want to go back. I want to know it's Tom Daly's journey story, um, wrapped up into some to some sentences like take us back when did you start diving did you you know what was before that why and how did it progress to I guess you what I want to touch upon you as kind of a, a superstar very quickly and very young do you want to take us back a little bit yeah I mean I grew up in Plymouth which is in southwest of the UK and it's by the sea so my parents were very you know basically wanted me to learn to swim in case I got into any kind of danger where I was thrown into the sea or fell in or at any point so I could be completely water safe. So by the age of three, I was uh, water safe and was able to swim and all that kind of stuff. And I was swimming all the way through to the age of about, well, about seven or eight. But at the age of seven, I went to just like on the weekend with my family to my local pool and was like, you know what, I'm going to, we went to a different pool than we usually would. And I saw the diving boards, saw people throwing themselves off of it, doing somersaults and twists. And I was like, I want to try that. I want to be able to do that because that looks really cool. And the following Saturday we went down, uh, I tried diving, absolutely loved it. And from then on, it was every Saturday. Then I entered my first competition and there was like a talent scout for the world-class start program there. So then I had to like, 
do all these different measurements of like how tall I was, my wingspan, how high I could jump, how strong I was in certain you know areas. And I got put onto this like world-class start program with lots of the, lots of divers. And it turns out pretty much everyone that ended up going to London 2012 or Rio 2016 was on the program at some point or another. So it was a pretty successful talent uh, ID program. And I then, I, because I just loved it, I, you know, wanted to go every day and uh, didn't come without some struggles. Of course, when I was uh, nine years old, I hit my head um, on the poolside um, when I was diving in and it scared the living daylights out of me and I didn't want to dive. Uh, I, could, I couldn't actually get to the end of the diving board. I used to cry every training session. I was so terrified of absolutely everything. Um, but then there was this like switch that just flipped and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I started doing it. And then my learning curve kind of just went like really vertical, really quickly. And I learned lots of new dives very quickly. All of a sudden I'm up on 10 meter. I have a full men's 10 meter list at the age of nine. Uh, I compete at my first senior nationals at the age of 10 uh, and win uh, a bronze medal at the senior nationals and win the under 18 title. And then all of a sudden I was in contention to start competing in senior events. And I qualified for the Commonwealth Games when I was 11 and for the Melbourne 2006 ones. Um, but our performance director um, decided not to send me because he thought I was too young uh, and he didn't want to you know, do anything that might jeopardize how I would feel about diving in the future. So then I just carried on training and carried on diving. And all of a sudden it was the year before the Olympics. And my coach said to me, do you want to go to the Olympic Games? And I was like, a 12 year old being like, yeah, of course I want to go to the Olympic Games. What are you talking about? Um, and then he was like, okay, if we follow this plan that I've written, if we learn these dives at these times and go to these competitions, I think we're in with a shot of qualifying for the Olympic Games. And of course, it was my dream to go to the Olympic Games. I remember age eight, nine, when I first did, started doing my first diving competitions, I used to have this little book that I would draw around every single medal that I had, write what it was. Uh, what age I was, where it was, and all those kind of details about the medal. And in the front of that book, I drew a picture of myself in a handstand with the Olympic rings saying London 2012. And that was just when it was a candidate city. Um, but when, uh, obviously, we found out that it was going to be in London, and then I was kind of told, oh, you might be in with a chance of going to Beijing. Um, and then we got to the World Cup, which is the final qualifying event. And it was the first world like world scale event I've ever been to and I had to come top 12 to qualify a spot for myself and top eight to qualify my uh, top 12 to qualify GB and top eight to qualify myself um, and there were 65 divers in the competition and obviously everyone's going for this Olympic spot and Olympic dream and I got through to the final and that automatically qualified a spot for GB. And it came down to my last dive to qualify a spot for myself. It was my newest dive and I landed the dive the best I'd ever done it and ended up coming seventh. And it qualified me a spot for Beijing Olympics. And that was kind of the moment where my life kind of turned around in such a dramatic way when people were like, oh dear, this 13 year old has just qualified to go to the Olympic Games. and. Uh, then obviously when I got home, it was like this media circus that kind of changed everything. Uh, some better, some for worse. Of course, there's some great things that come from it. And also, but also I was in year eight. I was a year eight kid in secondary school. Like imagine how 
the rest of them, like some people in my school were really happy about it. But imagine if like one of your friends in year eight qualified for the Olympics, some people weren't so happy about that. And some people weren't so accepting of my diving and some people weren't so, um, you know, I guess you could call it people got jealous and people would say horrible things and be really mean and nasty to a point where it, you know, it made me not want to ever go to school again. And I feel like lots of people have been in that position before. Um, but yeah, so I, again, Olympics in 2008, for, um, I was 14 uh, when they came round. Um, and then it kind of all escalated, like in the year after 2009, 15, won the world championships. And then in 2010, won two Commonwealth golds. Uh, 2012, obviously the Olympic Games, bronze medal. Um, and then I didn't actually win another, well, Rio 2016. That's a whole other story probably for in a minute. Um, and then it took me till 2017 to eight years later to win my, uh, another individual world title. But it's kind of just been this like roller coaster of a ride where, you know, sport is so on the day, especially with things like, I'm assuming the same with gymnastics. And But you can kind of shuffle a pack of cards in diving and kind of be like, this is the person that's going to be best on the day because everyone has the potential to do the gold medal winning performance so it's a I mean it's been a a whirlwind of I mean it's nearly 20 years I've been doing the sport that's mental yeah you, you, you're playing that down man it sounds it sounds quite simple all that that process but to be 13 years old and you don't just qualify for the Olympics like rocking up to the pool and doing like a flip into a dive you um, were obviously doing world-class dives i assume triples quads ridiculous ridiculous dives how how do you think you just you know developed and learned that quick do you think part like hitting your head on the side of the pool played a part in that or i think there's uh, there's something i don't know why i am this way and i don't know why i but whenever it comes to doing anything i have to do it really well and i have to try and be the best at it whether well, that was school um i mean i was i wouldn't i hate to use the word geek but i was very much focused on making sure i did the best that i possibly could in school for a levels and gcses i mean i was doing my a levels at the same time as 2012 but then at the same time i'm very with diving again i just put everything into it and even recently in lockdown i started knitting and i just went from not knitting at all to now knit i can knit pretty much anything that's put in front of me so one of those things that I think I've got quite a an obsessive or an addictive personality when it comes to trying new things or a new skill. I want to get really good at it and I will spend hours and hours practicing until mm. I get to where I want to be. Yeah. It sounds like me very much. Isn't it? Yeah. It sounds like exactly the, the same as now. Yeah. And so, so, you know, going through that period then, the, the ages, I mean, I remember what Niall was like at 13. Um, how, did, how did you cope with that? Uh, mentally, Tom, you know, your attitude towards it all, were you, were you always in a good place with that? I, I'm not fishing for, uh, no, you know, because, yeah. you, you know, you were you were in the media, weren't you? And Sally and I, with our own son, used to watch you in the media all the time. You you, were, you became incredibly famous very quick. What what was it like coping with that? I, To be honest, I, well, I just dived. And I was very much... Um, not, I wouldn't say shielded, but I chose never to watch anything that I was in, never to read anything that was written about me. 
occasionally I would look at the pictures and that was it. I never wanted to read anything that was good about me. I never wanted to read anything that was bad about me because if I read something bad, it would make me feel, I guess it would make me feel bad. And if anything was good, it would also like affect me in a, a bad way too. So I feel like the best thing to do and what I did was I would do all these interviews and people would ask me questions and I would just chat to them as if they were, you know, Joe blogs from down the street and um, then just focus on my diving because that was what I loved doing and I still do love doing. And I think it's, I think, you know, in this day and age with social media and things like that, we can get very caught up in what we're doing and what, how people see us. And actually look, people have no idea how difficult it is to be an athlete and how they see all of the competitions, they see all of the travel and the places that we get to go, but they don't see the behind the scenes of how insanely difficult it is to be at the top of a sport, how insanely difficult the training is, the sacrifices that you have to make um, day in, day out. It's not a job that you can just leave at the office. You have to eat well, sleep well, recover, all those kinds of things. So for me, I just tried to never look at any of that stuff. Um, of course, it was strange and surreal when people would come up to me in the streets. But again, I would be like, I didn't know, I would never know if I knew them or if they knew me. Uh, and it was kind of always that thing that I just wanted to try and be as, you know, out of the loop as possible when it came to me being in the public eye, if that makes sense. Yeah. So was that your decision or do you think you got some help with that? Because that, that's that advice is it's something that I, I've particularly with social media, for example, I wish the apps never existed because I thought this trap of it's the same saying, you know, reading about yourself, saying something good, saying something bad. It's like comment, you're constantly getting uh, feedback and, and gratification and numbers and views and comment and likes and I wish I could just create a video and delete the apps like they weren't real because I know it'd it make me just focus like you said on the diving did you have anyone helping you at that at that time um I, I mean I've always had a sports psychologist who would talk me through things um but at the same time I've just always I, I again it's something my dad taught me is that like I, he never cared what anyone thought, uh, whether he would like, he would pretend to like, he would like sing songs at the top of his voice on the plane. When it came into land, he would like do the those silly things to try and embarrass me. And at the time when my dad was alive, it was all about, I always used to be like, Oh my gosh, so embarrassing. I can't believe it. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you embarrassing me? You're ruining my life. <laughs> you know, it, as you can imagine, like that's what parents do. But yeah. now uh, now that he's no longer here, I actually look back on that and I'm thinking, oh my, he taught me so many valuable lessons to not care what anyone else thought, not care about anyone else's opinion. You do you, you be you. And, you know, if they don't like you, you know, if you don't like it, lump it kind of thing. It's like, uh, that's why I just tried to be as, again, like it's, I, I fall into the trap of social media all the time. I mean, it's one of those things that I feel pressure to have to post a video every week or have to do something. And there are times where I think, oh, I just wish that I could just f drop it all and just be, you know, be a diver and not have to think about any of that. But at the same time, it is a, a great way to have like a creative output and do something that's not just diving, diving, diving all the time. So there's pros and cons to it all, to be honest. Um, but it would most of the time it was just me um, trying to lots of people always said that I would always um, 
I had to grow up really quickly, I think is the, is part of it because I was going away traveling from a young age. And, um, so being around adults kind of, they, it was, I used to just like take everything in and what people would say. And I think that is what also, um, fueled some of my decisions as well. Yeah, I think the way you describe it, Tom, is just brilliant. I, you know, when you use language like "I just die," and you don't get you don't get into a, an emotional trap of what other people say or media affecting the way you feel, because ultimately the way you feel is going to affect your performance, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the 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 media can put on so much pressure onto you, and so much like going into London 2012, there was so much pressure and so much expectation, and like, oh, he's going to go win a medal. It's going to just turn up and there's going to come away and he's going to be on the podium and it's going to be great. There's only a day to go kind of thing. And it's like, you know what? Uh, one, I'm not going to read that and not fall into that trap because people can try and put as much pressure on you as they want. But at the end of the day, you are, I'm the one who controls how I feel. I'm the one who's in control of what my body does. And at the end of the day, perspective is the biggest thing that I've learned over my diving career that you like at one point in my diving career, if I was stood on the end of a diving board, I was, th- and it was in a competition, no matter how small or how big I used to think this is the moment. I don't care what happens next, but if I do this dive, well, I'm going to be so happy. Uh, this is the biggest thing that I've worked so hard for this. This is like everything that I've ever wanted. This is like uh, the world is watching. This is, this is it. And actually, you know what? There's a man walking his dog outside the pool that's got no idea what you're doing, doesn't even care what you're doing on the diving board. And sometimes just being able to remember that although you may think it is the biggest thing that's happening in the world and in your life ever, actually, if you put it in perspective, it's really not a big deal. And I always liken it back to at the end of the day, sport is just a game. It's the Olympic Games. It's a very big game, but it's just a game. And if you remember that, you can enjoy it. You can have fun. And nine times out of 10, if you're enjoying it and having fun, you're going to perform better. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to be defined or crippled by the result, good or bad. Exactly. Not the end of the world, is it? And just go along for the ride. You know, it's, you may as well, you, whether you win or whether you lose, yeah, you're going to, you might get some attention and gratification for it for the first, you know, for a few days and then the next thing happens and yeah, but it's just- I've noticed, noticed that so, so much when obviously you were a lot more accustomed to this um, and already done two Olympic Games but when I Rio was my first mm. um, when I came when I came home I was experiencing the the attention rush and the fame because it was so relevant so, like, however many millions are watching you on the television and you feel on top of the world. Like, at this time, I, was, I struggled to cope with all of this. But I remember coming home to Leeds and it was like I was David Beckham, literally. But it, but it, that only lasted a week. And then, by the way, the Olympics is done now, so no one gives a shit about that. It's what's on to the next thing. And then slowly it starts to fade away and it's like, oh, yeah, well, you're not that important, Niall. Do you know what I mean? You're not. And I, and I think... That's something that I've learned and what you said there about perspective is just so powerful. Yeah. I struggled massively after London 2012 because um, within sports and in my era of like getting ready for that um, that competition, it was it was all that anyone ever thought of. It, it was like we didn't think past what was happening past London 2012. London 2012 was like the 
the end goal, the end dream. That was where everyone wanted to get to. And I remember finishing my competition being like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I had like, like, well, I only ended up having a week off because I had to get back for the junior world. But I was like living on this high for ages and went to the uh, junior world champs and it was all amazing. And then I had like a couple of weeks off after that because in October, it was the end of my season. And I remember coming back and thinking, what now? Like, yeah. where, where do I go from here? London 2012 was all I'd ever thought about, all I ever dreamt of, what I'd worked my whole life for. Uh, like Beijing was like a, an experience jump towards London 2012. What now? I've got four years. I've got an Olympic medal. And how, how on earth can I say to someone, I've won an Olympic medal, but I feel really, really shit. I yeah. feel like I like I I don't know what to do. I felt lost. I felt so down, and it was a really surreal experience for me because it's something that I'd never ever thought of or ever thought might ever happen to me. And I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I I quit, and I quit, and I just you know I literally was like, I can't do this anymore. It's too stressful, too much pressure, um, and I quit and. Ended up going to, in that time that I quit, which was briefly in the end, but um, I, on the third day, I, I flew to LA because I had, I was doing some stuff with Nickelodeon. And it was when I was over in LA that I met my now husband. And that for me was the big turning point in my diving career of how I managed to carry on. Because meeting Lance, my husband, was someone that was so successful in his field, it kind of gave me this new uh, lease of inspiration and motivation and new ways of thinking about things that I'd never thought about before. And all of a sudden I came back to training and it was like I was a, a new person. Like all of a sudden everything made sense. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it takes like a, a big thing in your life to make, like kick you into gear a little bit. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating story. I um. I I certainly experienced the the Olymp we call it the Olympic come down I guess that a lot of athletes have used exactly it, it's so true you define yourself you have this purpose in your life and this is your identity like you're the diver and the gymnast where alpha where where professional athletes were role models and then like this this event particularly as an Olympian it's such a strange cycle of like kind of every four years you have one shot at it you know, two-week competition, the biggest thing in the world, and then win or lose, you know, like, obviously we've experienced success, but it'll be the same, it's the same high and or sometimes disappointment if you've not performed the way you did. But then it's like, what, what the hell do I do in my life now? Like, I've just, I've just been experienced the biggest rush of euphoria that, that less than 1% of people will ever experience. And now I'm sat in my kitchen. This is how I explain it. I'm sat in my kitchen. Mum was saying, "Will you empty the dishwasher, Niall?" Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. What the what the fuck? Yeah. What, what now? And the way I the way I coped with it was was partying. And initially, I don't know whether you have, have kind of ever experienced with this had experience, but I just for the, for twelve weeks after Rio, then I just three times a week. Yeah, I think I feel like it was it was trying to escape those feelings, but also cling on to the high. Yeah. Because when I went out, I was like, I was getting recognised, and it, it felt obviously I was getting very drunk. So 
it felt it made me feel good and it gave me similar feelings and I felt like I was chasing the euphoria of what I just felt even though you're never going to get it again yeah absolutely I was in, in 2012 I, I turned 18 in the May so I and then the Olympics were obviously in August so I was kind of like oh I don't really want to go out and you know experience that yeah I'm going to wait until after the Olympics so it wasn't just the fact that I wanted to go out after the Olympics it was also that I'd never been out so it was everything was completely new so it was like a whole different level of exploration it kind of made me think that's what part of the reason why I didn't really want to dive I was like I've never had a chance to experience being a normal kid that's been able to just go out and have a good time and be with their friends it was always like oh, I gotta get back I've gotta go to sleep gotta be up for training and yeah. it was training 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 all the time and then I got this taste of what it would be like to just you know, I said I don't like to use the term "be normal," but have a a, a non-athletic job. It just it was a it was a real weird thing. And so, twenty thirteen was not a good year for my diving career whatsoever. Uh, but it was a very big learning year for me. Um, but made me realize, obviously, you can't. I mean, for me, I put on weight really easily. So, like, I can't drink because I put on like so much weight. But it's something also that made me learn i mean it, it teaches like those that kind of success and those kind of life-changing things really do teach you a lot about teach you a lot about yourself that you would never know that could even be uh within you and it does again and then things will happen where you realize what you've been doing and realize how you might have been treating other people and just think actually i need to get my life back on track and it's uh I mean, it's we all as athletes, I think, go through some form of that in one scale, whether it's on a minor scale or on a big scale. Everyone goes through that kind of I'm completely lost. I don't know what I'm doing with my life and something changed kind of feeling. Yeah, no, and that's it. That's in and out of sport, isn't it, Tom? It, it, you know, it's not just elite sport guys like yourself. There are there are kind of. Um, you know, public. There are people out there in every single walk of life, at whatever level it has, that, that has those same same feelings. So, so you know, the, the feelings of not knowing where you are, not knowing what your purpose is, not um, you know, however you want to describe it, can cut across any walk of life. And I, and I think as well, um, you know, you guys, you've experienced euphoria on on a, a real extreme level. The, the challenge is always how you deal with it. Isn't it? Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, we and, and this brings back to being, uh, you know, a father and a parent, and then you have a child that's going through those things, and then how you cope as a parent, and what are the, you know, what in, in terms of your belief system, what you believe, what your attitude is towards it, how is it best to deal with it when you have a son or a daughter that's that's doing that? So, um, you know, it's uh, what am I trying to say? I'm just trying to say it cuts across lots of people and lots of people find different coping mechanisms and different ways to deal with it, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Some people I've, you know, I've known some people just to, you know, kind of disappear, if you like, and just, you know, go away and want to be on holiday and just escape from everything to try and get some perspective. And like you say, some people are like myself, wanted to go out all the time. And then there's some people that want to, you know that just want to get straight back on the horse and get back to back to training and it's uh yeah it's, it is really interesting to see how so many people cope with well success or failure in so many different ways yeah can, can i say i just uh back back to the sport um 
I, just, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the difference between, in terms of, you, you, again, your feelings and your attitude, the difference between individual and, you call it pairs in diving? In synchro, yeah. Synchro. So, because there are that dynamics of when you're on your own, you're on your own. So whatever happens ultimately is in your hands. And, you know, you know I know there can be external influences. When you're diving with a partner, does that bring a different type of pressure? Um, it's it's interesting that you say that because it well it, individual is just you. You're up there on your own. You got no one to talk to, no one to express how you feel, no way of you know venting anything. Everything's just you uh, on your own doing what you can. Which for me, I quite like individual because I just can do my own thing, not worry about what anyone else is doing, and just do me. When it comes to synchro, it's a whole different experience for me. I love the fact that, um, well, in London, I won an Olympic medal for individual. And in Rio, it was for synchro. And it was so much of a different experience to win a medal with someone and be able to share that experience with another person. It made it so, like, it, it's hard to, like, say to someone, if you won an individual medal or no one else on the team won a medal, to be like, oh, my gosh. I won an Olympic medal. How insane is that? Because you don't want to say that to your teammates who didn't win a medal. Whereas if you won a medal with someone and you've done it as a team, like being able to just have that conversation and just being able to say out loud, oh my gosh, we're Olympic medalists. Um, it does, it, it makes it so much easier to, um, you know, just feel good about it and live in that moment for a second. But when it comes to actually diving, when you're up on the diving board, you have to completely let go about what that other person is doing. Yes, you're a team and you walk up the board together and you can talk to each other a little bit. But some, like, for example, some of my diving partners in the past have wanted to know where we are on the scoreboard. Some don't even look at the scoreboard or want to know how we're doing. Um, and for example, with Matty, who I'll be diving with next year at the Olympics, he is, um, he's like, because he's quite new to international competition to, at the highest level, we've both kind of had to learn a lot about each other and how we compete. But at the same time, if we start worrying about, oh, is this, per is Matty going to do a good dive or am I going to do a good dive? Or if he's worrying about what I'm doing, all of a sudden you're spending energy in places where you don't want to be spending energy because if you're thinking about all those other things, you're not concentrating on what you're actually doing. So we do all the training together in order to be able to stand on the end of the board and literally say one, two, three, go and do our own dive without thinking about the other person so that you can get the best individual execution, which in turn gives you good synchronized scores. So it's really about being able to switch off and compartmentalize how you do your own dive and not think about what anyone else is doing. Yeah, I mean, you're so professional. Do you have plenty of banter, though? Would you say, Matty, I was perfect there, Matty, and to be honest, yours was a bit rubbish. <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean we, we do in, in training, and, and we do in competition sometimes too. Like it's, But often it's funny because he always, I, he always laughs at me because I hit the water, and the first thing I do uh, is I – hit the water like and as soon as I hit I look up and look at the holes which we entered in to see how big the holes were because if I, if I look up and I've got like a really small hole because I went vertical and then all of a sudden it like there's a big massive like crater and I come up and there's like a tidal wave you kind of know what Matt like what Matty's done or what I've done and often if one of us has done a bad dive I'm kind of just like oh sorry or like oh my bad um at the end of the day we're a team what one day 
one of us might do well and one of us might do bad and the other way around might happen in the, the next day. So it's just, you know, getting to a point where you can let go about worrying about how you're going to make the other person feel if you do a bad dive. If you can let go of that, you can then just dive. And when you get to that point where you're kind of one team where for, for better or for worse, you don't you just got to do what you can i think when you get to that point that's when you can really do some good synchronized diving absolutely you're in it together aren't you how do you you decide who counts to three um well uh i I always count i kind of i'm a bit of a i don't know no i wouldn't say control freak but i do like to um i i kind of take the lead when it comes to uh counting like routine and also because i've always been the diver that um every new diver that comes through pairs with me because they try and pair like the their best British diver with the the one that's closest matched technique wise and di- the, with the hardest dives. So it's, I've always kind of had my way of doing it because, you know, I'm a bit, I've had a different synchro partner at each Olympic games and every Commonwealth games in between has been different. So, it's, you know, it's got now, yeah. yeah. So you kind of, I kind of have a routine and way of doing synchro and people kind of just, we, uh, like slot into that so i end up counting quite often oh, that was me- it was meant to be a joke question yeah, that well, was but- such a professional answer <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But- it's a professional answer you control for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i want to i think it's worth us me and you know niall and tom um talking a little bit about we're we doing telephone numbers Got well, right yeah now. i have yeah. <laughs> yeah, just read it out, Niall. Why not? Yeah, yeah. So, have, you got, have you got your number, Tom? So now I could just read it out on this podcast. <laughs> I've been um, 2017, you just won the world title, haven't you? Yes. Um, and I remember we were in touch and we, we had this at the time, I just started to blow up on YouTube. And you were like, you've been doing it a bit long. Well, I think we've been doing it the same amount of time, but you had a bigger audience. and because we kind of said, oh, this would be such a such a good video idea. Let's go down. I remember you, Joanna came down. We went to London for the day and spent it with Tom, which was which was a sick experience for me, to be fair, bro. Because like, we'd, well, we'd met at the Olympics, but we weren't really, you know. We, yeah, we, we I was still of, all the way to the last day. So. Distant friends, you know, we saw. And then we, we had this day together where you tried gymnastics and then you took me to the Olympic pool. And... And we did diving, and then the videos just took off. They went mental on YouTube. I think yeah. yours is how many views? It's like eight million, something stupid. Something crazy. Um, so then we kind of had that experience, and it was it was such a fun, great experience. Fast forward a year, we're at the Commonwealth Games together, and at this point, we kind of established ourselves as, I'd say, vloggers. Yes. Um. So I, I, I'm going to I'm going to expose this right because this is a podcast, is long form content. We, if you remember, we we were, we were text messaging each other, and the whole the whole videos they were like prank fueled, weren't they? It's like oh, we should do a yeah. prank, we should do a prank to each other. Usually, kids, if you listen to this, I wouldn't believe everything that you see on YouTube, but we we pre-planned those pranks where I was going to steal your swimming trunks. <laughs> He's gonna. You can steal my my leotard. So, yeah, the, the the long story short is in that video, I made a huge mistake. 
Um, we was wrapped up in the bubble of what we was doing. I was enjoying. I was thinking, this is going to be a fucking sick video. <laughs> and uh, part of it, I'd called you to come down to the room, and you. Well, that's where I was going to steal your trunks. And I left a, a one second clip, and it's kind of like one of those when you edit it because I was editing myself at that at that time. I know you have an editor and stuff, but you don't you don't see what you don't need to see or if it means a lot so like your number flashing up just didn't cross my brain but anyway Tom Daly's <laughs> number is on YouTube to a million people live at the Commonwealth Games for a split second what was that night like I literally I, I it was funny because I have my phone on night mode so nothing actually comes through unless you're in my favourites so when I woke up in the morning, I literally had, I think it was 352 missed calls. <laughs> and I, I think I took a screenshot at some point. I'll have to find it. And there was like 670 messages, 500 WhatsApps. And I was like, what on earth? I was like, what's just happened? Like, <laughs> as, like what on earth has just happened? Why, wh- how have all these people got my number? And then it wasn't until I logged on to Instagram, I think it was, and in my direct messages people were like no wilson just leaked your number on on youtube i was like what what do you mean <laughs> and then i looked and i was like oh that's not leaking the number that's like i mean i i, I can imagine making that kind of mistake it, it's like so easy to do like you said when you're editing you don't think about it you just do it and then all of a sudden like it was you know you don't look for things like that if you filmed it yourself and you're not actually looking at it when you're filming it so it's yeah, yeah. It was no, I'm, glad, I'm glad your reaction was that mix. You were pretty cool about it, which I'm thankful for. Yeah, I, I went to the. Um, they, they had a in the village. They had like a sim shop, and I just went and got an Australian sim for the time being before I could change my number back in the UK. I'm, I'm sorry about that, man. No, I, I, I think as well. I don't. You did a second video, didn't you, where you spoke about it? I, I never. I never forget that shot on the balcony where Tom's doing that slow clap. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well done, Niall. But it's almost, it's almost like you know, from a from a vlogger's perspective, and if you are big on YouTube, and YouTube is a very important part of what you want to achieve from a brand perspective, it was massive for you both, wasn't it? What for you, now? <laughs> yeah. You couldn't have done anything better than that. Like, everyone, everyone, everyone was kind of saying he'd done this on purpose. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. But like, but you, <laughs> yeah. We, I think we, the thing is with YouTube, I think it's such it's so much fun. You kind of have to make it a bit of fun. And, you know, there's so much, there's everything so serious all the time. And I feel like sometimes social media, I feel like definitely our channels, it's kind of like a bit of an escape. Um, so, yeah. but yeah, I think it was, it was fun. How do you, um, so for me, I totally agree. Like I, I, I love creating videos. I have done since I was a kid and I found that really be like, like the creative escape that I might need sometimes to get away from your sport because I hate being like a robotic, my life and world revolves around gymnastics. But how, what I found was it began to change a little bit when it, when it got big because it kind of came, became a business in a sense, it became now a part of my job, and I know you'll you'll feel this athletes yeah. watching. Or if you're not watching, the the success as an athlete, then also the success digitally on social media, 
has huge impact on our income because we have sponsorships. You know, you, the bigger you are, the more opportunity you've got to be a champion, really. that That's kind of what drives the sponsorship deals, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it does. It, it's, it's kind of like if you've got a bigger reach, of course, you're more valuable to sponsors in the, in the yeah. sense that, you know, I guess every... Uh, you know, every brand has to align with the athlete's values at the core of it. And, you know, what you put out on social media is what brands, uh, you know, look for, like, do they align with what our product values are and what our product messages are? So, you know, it is a, it's a different thing to be, you know, constantly, I I feel like all athletes are very conscious and very always thinking about what is, you know, okay to say and what's not okay to say. Um, But it's, uh, again, like you said, like when it's all small and fun, you kind of just don't really think about it. And when it does get bigger and you have to start thinking about it, um, something that I've tried really hard not to get into, uh, especially when it comes to Instagram, but I have no plan, no, you know, no content planning or anything. I just post when I want to post and try not to overthink it because Sometimes if I overthink it, it, I've tried that and it's just so it becomes time consuming. It becomes a pressure and it becomes a chore and you have to just always come back to enjoying it. Yeah. So I felt that I wonder I was going to ask you, I I certainly felt that with YouTube because it became this. Now there's like we're outcome focused now. I need or I don't need, but ideally I want to get half a million views or a million views because that's going to. That's going to generate more ad revenue. That's going to generate more followers. I'm going to be getting paid more. And then you slowly lose this this version, which is I'm doing this because I enjoy creating videos. Have you ever felt that with YouTube? Or is it still the similar mindset? It's just like I just dive and I love to do it. Yeah, I mean, a bit of both. I mean, I get to a point, especially in lockdown, I'm kind of like I when you're looking full-time after a two-year-old, it can be like, I mean, I just – think like when on earth do I have the time to one work out like when he's napping which he's starting to drop now anyway like I that's when I get to work out and then if I don't get to work out then I have to work out once out once he's in bed or sometimes I wake up super early I set my alarm for six to wait work out before he wakes up um so then when it like sometimes creating YouTube content is so far at the back of my mind when I'm in what during lockdown that it gets to Saturday and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't have a video for tomorrow. What am I going to do? Then it kind of becomes rushed content, which is never the best kind of content that uh, you can put out there. But it's, I guess it's, it's tricky times now for everyone. And it's just, everyone is just doing what they can to get through. Definitely. For me, I, I, I feel that. I feel that. And it's just like, Right, it's not I want to make a video, it's shit, I have to because I've got obligations and it just becomes this it becomes this pressure. Um, but yeah, so plan talk let's talk about real touch and we're, we're approaching an hour, mate, and I know I know I said I won't I won't keep you longer than an hour. What because I remember seeing you after the the individual final and you won the, the synchro bronze. What happened on that day? Oh my gosh. It was Rio was such a roller coaster ride for me. Like I felt like I went into that Olympic Games in prime position and prime, you know, condition to do the best that I could. And at the time, you know, I I definitely knew and thought I was in contention of to win the Olympics that year. Um and uh I know the, the synchro event was great and we won a bronze. 
yes, we could have won silver, but, you know, an Olympic medal is an Olympic medal. Um, and then it came to the individual. And I, I went into the prelim and was feeling good, just, you know, chugging along, didn't feel like I was doing anything special. But I finished the prelim first place with an Olympic record. And I was like, okay, way to hit it out from the get-go kind of thing. Um, thinking back to like on all of the other Olympics in the past, nobody's ever scored that. And I was like, oh gosh, okay, great. And I was feeling good. And I was like, okay, let's go back to the hotel. Well, not to the hotel, to the village, get some food, rest. By this point, it was 10 o'clock we got back and I had to be back at the pool at six to wow. come up again for the next, for the semifinals. And I got there to the pool, did my normal routine, got into the thing. And then in the competition, there was some kind of disconnect. And I can't even ever explain or I still don't quite understand how or why, other than the fact that, you know, nervous system gets burned out from, you know, so much adrenaline and so much, you know, effort going into something, not enough recovery time, maybe, uh, who knows, but yeah. I, it just didn't happen. I mean, I could have done a hundred competitions and maybe one might have gone like that out of a hundred. And of course it went like that on that day. And I ended up not making the final. And I remember being so destroyed by that. And so to how I could have gone from an Olympic record and first place to then the next day, not making the final and not even getting a chance to chase that Olympic dream was so, so devastating. And I literally could have, it was, Again, it was before I was a parent and it was before uh, I had this perspective that I do on it now. But like mm. I thought that my world has come to an end. That was the worst moment of my life. There was nothing that I could have. I put everything into that. I, those four years, I sacrificed everything. I did not, you know, leave a single stone unturned and to come away from it in that with those feelings was so it kind of like broke me for a very long, I had to, I took four months off and I was like, I can't come back. I cannot come back to the pool. I don't know if I want to carry on. What am I going to do? Um, but then when I did decide to come back in the January of 2017, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make everyone eat it kind of thing. And I, and I remember just having this feeling of complete, you know, there was nothing that was going to stop me. There was nothing that was going to change how I felt. There was nothing that was going to stop me from, winning the world championships. I was like, you know what? I've got a point to prove here. And yeah. lo and behold, I got to the world championships in 2017 and going into the last round, I was in first place. And uh, the Chinese diver that went before me, who was the Olympic champion from the year before, did a dive for nine and a half and tens. And I remember seeing him go to his uh, teammates and celebrating, like thinking that he'd won and being like, you know, just basically I needed to get tens to win. And I remember seeing him down there looking and celebrating with his friends like, oh, yeah, we've, you know, I've won. This is amazing. And I remember looking at, I like made eye contact with him. And then I looked to the end of the board and there was this kind of, it's, I've, I've never experienced it in any of my competitions before, but I looked at him and I looked at the end of the board and I was like, I'm going to win. <laughs> and I knew it. And it was a really weird, like, I know I'm about to win and I know I'm going to beat him. And I remember standing on the end of the board and it was like I went into some kind of autopilot flow that I've, I didn't even have to think about anything. It was like everything went completely shut off and I just let my body, you know, do it. Mm. And I remember hitting the water, coming out, waiting for the scores to come up. 
and seeing myself like you know come up number one and I was like it was it was so such a crazy crazy experience not just to the fact that obviously I wanted to prove a point but the feeling of there was like nothing that could have stopped me there was nothing that could have got in the way of me winning that competition and again like I said I've never felt anything like it before or since then um but it was a, a crazy crazy experience so good that's an amazing story that's giving me goosebumps that that's an amazing story let's uh teach me well you can't teach that I've, I've felt it before but let's recreate that in 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 a year's time mate that's exactly. what you want. That's, what, that's what we need <laughs> we're gonna win win <laughs> It's amazing because there was obviously, um, obviously, like I'm some sort of expert in this, and I'm not, but it must have been a massive, massive emotional attachment point to what was happening right there and then. And the the intensity of it as well. However, it it has to be coupled with brilliant, brilliant world-class preparation, doesn't it, and training and your body. You know, all them things have got to just come together in that moment. Yeah. For, for for you to do something special but you, you know at the end of the day you, you you're a special person with special talent which means that points in your career you're going to produce something super special there's no doubt about it it's incredible my um my first well my first international coach said to me andy banks he said there's no such thing as luck just good preparation and yeah. it is so true um you know yes um, you might get lucky sometimes but you can you know, it, with good preparation, you can go into it knowing that you've given it everything and then you can just let it rip. Yeah. Well, I can, I can believe as much as I like that I can go onto the high bar and do a release and catch like Niall does. I can have as, as much belief as I want, but the, the fact is, realistically, it will not happen unless you do the work. You've got to do the work to be able to be, put yourself in that position. Exactly. exactly. Which, which you two both do. So, I, you know, I've... I've seen this, the, um, the, the journey that Niall's been on. We talk about process, not results, the sacrifices that he's made and all the hard work. And, you know, when people are watching that Olympics once every four years and, and, you know, are judgmental about what they're seeing in front of them, they don't see behind the scenes and everything that's gone into that. You know, how long does a dive take, a 10-meter dive? Is it like two seconds or something? 1.6 seconds. So, like, in, if you add up all of the time that I'm actually diving in the – in, in the Olympics, it's faster than, you know, Usain Bolt running the 100 metres. Wow. <laughs> God, that's an amazing start, isn't it? So you train for four years for seven seconds. Yeah, exactly. For, yeah, so, yeah, about, yeah, seven, eight seconds. It's like, it's done. All it, yeah, all it takes to ruin it is 1.6. Oh, Matty yeah. Lee. God. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbish dive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, mate, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for your time. I would just, Tom Daly, leave the audience um, a gem and your advice for them, for everything that's happened in your life. What would you, what would be your advice? I think the one piece of advice uh, I would say is to worry less about what other people think of you. Um, You should be you, authentically you. Don't let um, other people... Uh, tell you who you should be what you should be how you should do it you at the end of the day know best and know what's best for you um so just stay true to who you are love it amazing amazing and 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 tom i know there's no doubt about it you're going to be a super dad just like me (laughs) (laughs) i hope so i hope so (laughs) 
Cheers, brother. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Pr- privilege and an honour. Thank you very much. Brilliant.